Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 49 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and they're gonna give you $100 off, so do yourself a favor beunsettled.co slash Nathan and prepare for one of the best months of your life. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Every week we're helping you create a more extraordinary life. And today I've got Blake Bork on the show who's joining us to tell a very tragic story about when he lost his twin daughters, how it affected him, how it impacted his marriage and how he's really rebuilt his life since then. I reviewed the book Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni. And today I wanted to talk to you about support and making sure you've got the right support. Just been thinking about it today. I just had a a great conversation with one of my coaches, Taki Moore, and just instantly, we only had about 35, 40 minutes on the phone, but he really helped pull together some pieces of the puzzle and got me back on track. I felt a little bit stuck in the last week. It happens in business all the time. Sometimes you uh, push up against an edge, you find yourself in a situation and you're too in it. You're too close to it, so you can't find a way out. So I reached out to Taki, uh, we jumped on a call and he just quickly put in place four or five things that helped me see a way through. And now I'm back on track again. So I wanted to encourage you, if you haven't got support, start looking for it. One way you can do it is through uh, using a coach. As you know, I love coaches. I'm a coach myself. You can reach out to me and we can uh, look at how we can work together. But also look at how you can find a community for yourself of, of like-minded people. When you start getting into freelancing or entrepreneurship or coaching, it can be very lonely. You go from having this fantastic family or workplace where you're interacting with people all the time to all of a sudden you're working from home or you're working from cafes and it can very quickly become lonely and isolating. So you need to find a way and for a couple of reasons, for your own sanity, just to have more people around you. And two, it actually pushes you forward. When you surround yourself by like-minded people and you're in a community of people that are doing cool things that are similar to what you're doing, it really lifts your whole game and makes you feel like you're in this together with other people. So I run a community with all of my clients. So when you start working with me in any of my programs, you get to join the Extraordinary Life Facebook group and we have constant videos in there. People are always posting videos for support. They can go in there and they can brag about stuff. We have a monthly group call where we get on and we just chat and support each other and have fun. And it just brings that level of community to what can be a very, very lonely time. So if you're feeling that, start looking around for a community that can support you and start with a coach because coaches usually have access to different communities that they can put you in touch with. But I just want you to understand how important it is to have people around you that are supporting you and are on the same track. And I'm talking about exponential difference. If you're going to try and do this journey on your own, it's just going to take a whole lot longer. You're not going to do it as well. And it's going to be lonely. And so finding a community and a coach or a support person that can help you is just going to be Uh, help you grow exponentially and have a lot more fun in the process. So start looking into it. How can you do that? And my book review this week is a book called Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni. And I love books that tell a story. 
rather than just give you the facts, probably because I get bored easily. And Getting Naked is a great example of that. It tells the story of a big consulting firm in San Francisco that buys out, that acquires a small uh, consulting firm called Lighthouse. I guess the book's probably more appropriate to consultants and coaches, but there is a lot to get in there for, for any business owner. And you probably guess from the title, Getting Naked, it's all about being more vulnerable with your clients, about stop trying to sell and impress and show off to your clients and actually get vulnerable and get naked with them. And it talks about in the book that really there are three fears that average businesses have. One is the fear of losing the business. So we're so worried about losing the client or losing the business that we tend to be nice or we tend to say the right thing and we kind of put pleasing our clients instead of serving them. So we have a fear of losing their business. Two, we have a fear of being embarrassed. So we don't want to say something that will make us look silly. We don't want to admit that we don't know something about our business or about their business. So we have this fear of embarrassment. And three, we have a fear of feeling inferior. So similar to fear of feeling embarrassed, we have a fear that we will look silly or look like we don't know what we're doing. And so those are three fears that he acknowledges when he goes into the small firm to try and figure out what they're doing so well, why they have higher margins, why they have happier staff. He realizes that these three fears of what most consulting firms have and that the small company has overcome. And so the whole second half of the book is how to overcome those fears. And there are a couple that really spoke to me. And first of all, he said, always consult instead of sell. So this comes from the fear of losing the business. Instead of trying to sell someone and impress them, just go straight into serving your clients, straight into helping them. What can you do right from the first time you meet that shows that you're just only interested in helping them and giving them everything and making them number one. So not trying to sell them and impress them, just trying to serve them. And the quote this week comes from one of the other chapters called Entering the Danger. And it's about, I think it sums up nicely about what, what they're talking about in terms of being vulnerable. And it says, entering the danger comes into play in those moments when you're in a meeting and someone says something that is either strange or politically sensitive. And you know that the level of anxiety and discomfort at the room is high. What you're tempted to do is just be quiet and let the moment pass. But what great consultants do is walk right into the middle of a situation and call it out. So that's called entering the danger. That's just one example about how you can dive in and get naked, uh, so to speak, in front of your clients. And it's a great book. I loved it. I enjoyed the read. Uh, Amazon tells me average read time is three hours, eight minutes. So it's a quick read. And uh, I think it'll be a lot of help for you. So go and check it out. And my guest on the show this week is the wonderful Blake Bork, and I really, really enjoyed talking to Blake. Blake has had his fair share of challenges throughout his life. He went from being a college NFL football player, which is a big deal in the States, and to a broken athlete. He became a millionaire by the time he was 22, then he went bankrupt again at 25. He was the CEO of a huge 150-employee company that did $33 million in turnover and then lost it all because of some uh, changes in government regulations. And he also lost his twin daughters that put an incredible strain on himself and his marriage. So he's a guy that really understands adversity. He understands business and he understands life at a whole new level and how to overcome some of those challenges. I love talking to Blake. I think you're going to enjoy it too. So without further ado, enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Blake Paul. So I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana, originally, which if you're looking at a globe is the boot in Louisiana. A lot of people know where New Orleans is or have heard of New Orleans, Louisiana. I grew up about two miles west of New Orleans in what they call Cajun country. 
And so a, a Cajun is uh, a person, typically of French descent, that came to America around the 1820s, only spoke French by way of Canada, actually. So the Cajuns, give you a little history lesson real quick. The Cajuns were kicked out of France for their religious beliefs and then kicked out of Canada because they wouldn't pledge allegiance to the British government and they wouldn't pledge allegiance to the Anglican church because they were Catholic. So they got kicked out of Canada. They uh, basically hit a storm in the Gulf of Mexico and they land in a place called Acadiana. And Acadiana is separated by language, by religion, and by territory, land, from the rest of Louisiana. It's like this little pocket where it's in the middle of the swamps. It's very fertile ground. It's got great, great ability to be able to farm. And it was a great ability for people to be able to grow up and raise families, but nobody can get to you. So for like 100 years, even in America, they were like landlocked. And it wasn't until the 50s or the 60s that my people even started speaking English like 1950s and 60s. Like my father was born in 1954 and he spoke French until he was eight or nine years old, like dirt floor poor. Wow. And, and, cool. and the Cajun culture, we're very much about owning our pain. Like we expect things to go wrong and we expect them to make us better. It's, it's, I'm so blessed to have been brought up in this culture where like they don't understand why you would charge interest for a loan. They call it usury. And, and it's like, well, if I got money and you need money and I give it to you and you give it back to me, why do you want to make money off of that? You got it. I need it. I gave it back to you. Like if, if I needed to eat some bacon and you gave me some bacon, I wouldn't, you, you know, like they don't get it. And, uh, and so typically whenever we fall on hard times or we fall on pain, despair, tragedy, we throw a party. We, uh, we dance. We music. We parade as a big drinking culture too, which has its own problems. But yeah, man, that what defined me really was just being blessed and lucky enough to be born where I was. Like, you know, in New Zealand, you guys have got a very defined culture, a very rich, proud culture. I'm a fan of the culture. And so, but you know, we have our own little unique thing here in Louisiana. So it was good stuff. Well, I, that's such an interesting story. I My mom is from Montreal. So I have, uh, she's not French Canadian, but I have, you know, pretty strong understanding of the, the Quebecois and the French side. And I heard the story before uh-huh. about the Arcadia and, the, and Louisiana, but I'd never, never spoken to someone about it in depth. It's very, very cool. And it's cool that you're able to connect them with that heritage as well. Yeah. A lot of no, people don't have that. It's deep. I mean, you know, in the, in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, the, your, your traditional parochial school systems almost stomped out all remnants like any dominating society, anything that they want to, you know, no, you, you don't speak with an accent because we speak with, we have accents. We sound like we're from the islands almost. Man, if I'm going to talk like, when I talk to my grandma or my grandpa, this is how they sound. And when we talk to them, everything's real flat oh, yeah. and they talk like that. And and because it's basically a French accent. And so they didn't want to hear that in school and they wanted everybody to speak English. So it's no different than what we're having right now with Spanish where, you know, people are, you know, they'll, they'll immigrate to America and they're expected to speak English. So we went through that in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But then all of a sudden people realize, look, man, you know, y'all got something special. Like nobody else in the world like has your music. Nobody has your food. Nobody has your culture. Nobody has your story. Why are you trying to kill it? And that made a lot of Cajuns wake up because inside of us, we realize that our stories are actually what control us and what get us to go forward. 
And we kind of felt like somebody was taking something away from us. So all of a sudden you had like this whole community come forward and all of a sudden we were like, okay, we're protecting what makes us authentic and we're protecting what makes us special and we're protecting our story. We're protecting our legacy. So it's been, it's been cool to also be a part of that because as I grew up as an eighties baby in the nineties, when I came back to college in 1998, I played college football for a a team called the raging Cajuns. It's a division one school. I just happened to play for the only team in in the world called the Cajuns. And so I, I played for five years for them and was a, Again, part of the community, part of the university, and really, we have high rates of obesity. We have high rates of diabetes. We have high rates of hypertension. We have high rates of depression. We have high rates of alcoholism. We have the highest rates of DWIs in the country. That's Louisiana. What what's, what does DWI stand for? Oh, DWI stands for driving while intoxicated. Ah, okay. Or DUI, driving under the influence. And so inside of our, you know, our pride culture, there's still, there's a dependence on alcohol in our culture that's uh, higher than the rest of the country. We are typically oil and gas workers here in Louisiana. So we're very much a slave to the seven and seven, 14 and seven type of turnarounds where guys are going offshore. They're making a lot of money offshore. And when they come home, they spend it. So it's like, it's, you know, they... They have an excuse to play and then offshore they have great creature comforts now. So it's dangerous work. And so they have the story in their head, the excuse to be a little reckless whenever they come back in. And I mean, if you're offshore for 21 days and you come back for seven, what are you going to do? You know, you, you're not spending money while you're out there. Well, with Amazon now you probably are, but back then you weren't, you know. Mm. And so they, there's, a, there's a culture of also a generational culture because of the modernization of just us, you know, civilization, where this dependence on oil and gas, my community, 88% of all of the oil and gas service companies have an office in a 30-mile corridor where I come from. Right. Every single business. oil and gas. Yeah, that's, that's just what we do. Mm-hmm. And that comes with its own set of pains and its own set of problems too. Because you, you, when you have a husband that's away from his family for 21 days at a time, those marriages don't work. You have other men raising your kids. You have coaches and teachers raising your kids. And, uh, men like myself, my dad didn't work in the oil and gas business, but he worked 70 hours a week. We were raised by the TV. We weren't raised by our fathers. Our fathers are ATMs. Our fathers would go to work, make the money, come home, go to work, make the money and come home. And when I did spend time with my dad, I love him to death. He's really a great father, but there's a lot of drinking. So I picked up a lot of those habits too. And we didn't talk about our feelings, especially with football coaches, because you're not supposed to have feelings. You know, you're not supposed to cry. You're not supposed to complain. You're not supposed to bitch. You're not supposed to moan. Like, you know, so you're, you're not, you're not programmed to be able to actually handle your life growing up in the generation that I grew up in. You're actually taught to sedate your life. And you think that goes back to the, like you said, the history of your people, they have a lot of, they're used to adversity and used to overcoming adversity and being on the back foot and being the underdog. The way that my culture, and it's kind of also now really a mirror image of just culture in general, but maybe we were on the forefront of this. Something bad would happen and we would throw a party. That's really interesting. What was the idea behind that? You think it was just to to celebrate what you were going to get out of that adversity? Have you ever heard of the, the term Zodico? No. Maybe new for your listeners too, but Zodico music is spelled just like it sounds. Um, <laughs> Zodico music is a, it's like the chanky chank. The, you have the fiddle and you have an accordion 
And, it, you know, if you hear it for the first time, you may think it's like polka music or something like that. But it's Zydeco music. It's got a real fast beat. You can two-step to it. You can dance to it. And what the Zydeco music literally translates to, Zydeco translates to the beans have no salt. And, and so when you think about the way that they used to cure meat back in the day, if the beans had no salt, then that meant that there was no meat in the beans. So if there's no meat in the beans that you fell on hard times. So we have like this whole style of music that causes you to dance and for you to party. Like when that music comes on, like you can't, you have to smile. So like we're <laughs> programmed literally like over year, generation, 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 where we all know how to Cajun dance. We all know how to two-step. And we know that when Zydeco music comes on, like my mouth waters for a beer. But it, it literally, it's rooted in the fact that like there was a hurricane that came by and ruined your entire village. There was a storm that came by. There was a famine. There was disease. There was smallpox. There was the Great Depression. There was World War One. There was World War Two. There was something that happened, and you're feeling the pain. And so we we transition from darkness in that pain spot to the light. And the problem sometimes is people aid that transition with sedation, and they don't do it by understanding their feelings and focusing on the problem and trying to figure out what's the best way for them to be able to overcome their current situation by like getting to work. My people's answer to it was, let's drink a beer and throw a party. Let's party. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I do. We can do the work tomorrow. Let's party. And that's the culture. No, it's party it's time. Yeah. Well, I love that background. Thanks. Thank you for that. It's such a unique story. So I appreciate that. Where does Blake fit into all of that? Where does Blake fit into all of that culture and, and everything? How do you deal with it? What influence does it have on you? You know, when you look at death, divorce, dispute, and dependence, kind of the four Ds that are real prevalent in people's lives these days, I think, I think being able to be br- brought up in that type of an environment, and <laughs> it's the best way to put this, I have partied enough for 10 lifetimes. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't need to anymore. Like for me... Where I'm at right now is I'm taking my experiences of overcoming addiction and overcoming alcoholism and overcoming, you know, being a grieving father and losing children. I'm using those experiences right now and rooted in a very family open, good culture, good community. And I'm helping men understand that they're not alone. And and I'm helping physicians and doctors understand how to practice good medicine, be good people love their wives, don't sedate themselves. And so that way they can make more money so they can grow good practices. So like I, it's a couple of good callings that I have going on right now. But I, I, I take my childhood everywhere I go. It's the sum total of everything that ever happened. The sexual abuse that happened to me whenever I was a kid, that had an impact on me. You know, a grown, a grown man showing me my first pornography when I was six years old, that had an impact on me. You know, ruined every sexual relationship I would ever have my entire life. That that absolutely had an impact on me. Watching my parents go bankrupt when I was a child that had an impact on me. You know, so every party, every every prayer, every every Thanksgiving dinner, every Christmas that we missed because people were working or because my uncles were fighting. Like as a man, like you gotta you gotta honor that. At some point, you have to say, "Golly, man, like that was some crazy shit I went through. Look at that, and I did that." And like, so what am I going to do with it? Because if I hide from it, I'm nowhere, I'm not tapping into the power that it could be. 
So what did that look like for you? You were playing uh, college football mm-hmm. after you left school. What was your journey from there? So college football, you know, you got to be careful what you desire because I desired to be a college football player. I never wanted to play professionally, but I did want to play college and I, and I earned my scholarship and I broke my neck. And one of the things that I learned to love whenever I was in college was, you know, I, I was a very strong player. I was an intense player. And um, what would end up happening is uh, pain medicine. I would get injured and I'd get pain medicine. And I, and, and I liked the pain medicine. I did like the feeling that pain medicine gave me. There was a euphoria that would happen to my brain that I did like. But I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't what I would call addicted. I didn't have a physical dependence I'd only have it whenever I was hurt. I never abused it, but I knew that I liked it. And so after I got out of school, I started a business and um, I was a television show host. I had a landscaping business. I did some roofing work for, for one of my uncles. I chased storms. I was 22 years old. I made my first million. I made a million two when I was 22. And I lost a million three when I was 23. And, and, and uh, oh my. That was a quick oh success. Oh, yeah. Like, well, bam, bam. Like, you, you don't realize it. You know, I mean, that's the cool thing about a wave, you know, is you have to ride up, but then you have to crash down. And so I literally rode the wave and just didn't get off of it. And uh, on my 25th birthday, I, uh, I had breakfast with my, my, my current bride and I uh, told her, I was like, I got to go. I got to go do something pretty bad. And she was like, what's that? And I was like, I got I to go. I'm filing for bankruptcy today. And she was like, you sure you want to do that today on your birthday? And I'm like, yeah, I, I need to do it today because I want to have a measuring stick for every day for the rest of my life. I want to know that every year I got better. And, and it starts today. This is the low point. So she kissed me on my cheek, said that she believed in me. And uh, it was like the moment that I knew I wanted to marry her. But, you know, on my credit bureau, 12 years later, 13 years later, it's still there. And I laugh because it's literally my birthday. May 31st and my birthday in the year. And that is, you know, in a weird, it's special because it's like a mark. What it did was it propelled me that point in time. It propelled me to be a banker because I was like, I've got to do something to remove this mark. I got to do something to take all that experience and turn it around and take my greatest weakness, which was at at that time, understanding my finances. I've got to use this now to be great at it. And so I became a banker under my mom's advice. I became a banker. And for six years, that's what I did. I studied the art of money and finance. And I became a private banker. And I advised physicians on how to grow their practices. And I worked with hospital recruiters on how to get physicians. I helped finance hospitals. I helped finance nursing homes, physician-owned rehab facilities. Like I took my greatest weakness to the time and what was an embarrassment. And I turned it into just another lesson that I learned. That's exactly right. I went and had a good time with it. And, and so through me being a banker, I had big boy insurance because I had good health insurance now for the first time. I was like, my neck, I know something's wrong with it. I found out four years after I broke my neck that I actually broke my neck. I'd been living with a fractured neck for a while. Wow. And so they start giving me treatment. And the first thing they do is they hand me a bottle of pills. And that's when I became dependent because they kept feeding them to me. What were the pills? The Lortab. started with Lortab. started with, with 20 milligrams of Lortab, which is hydrocodone. And at the end of my treatment, when I called Mate, when I tapped out and said, no bueno, this isn't working anymore. I can't do this. I was at 180 milligrams of oxycodone a day, which is Percocet. And so to go from 20 milligrams to 180 milligrams in about you know, a two-year period, it's, 
it's a steep curve. But what I realized, you know, when you become a banker from an entrepreneur, you become a banker. It's kind of like you having like a, like somebody like gives you a bow staff, you know, like you have this piece of wood, you have this stick in your hand and like you, you get, you start playing with the stick and you start like, you know, twirling it around and you like watch some Jackie Chan movies and you watch Bruce Lee and you're like, Oh wow, I can do that. And you kind of, you know, start doing things as an entrepreneur, you start doing things to make money and you're like, Oh wow, that move worked. And you keep twirling your stick and everything. And then, then somebody takes your stick away. And they, they put a sword in your hand and they say, okay, now we're going to teach you how to use this. And so when I became a banker, having an entrepreneurial mind and the drive and the ability to be able to communicate and connect people, when I became a banker, somebody gave me a edge on my weapon. And so around year four, year five, year six, I got the itch to get out and do something else. But I was taking copious amounts of pain medicine too. Not addicted yet, but dependent. And what people don't realize about the moving target that is playing with fire is that you will get burned. Because when my wife got pregnant and we lost our babies, depression plus dependence equals addiction. And then that was like, bam. The perfect formula. And because I got to keep charging forward, I got to take this tragedy and turn it into triumph. I took the loss of my baby girls and I force fed it down everybody else's throat and I started a business. And that's when I just went into, I went into hyperdrive. So, you know, and then I had the skill set of being, you know, basically graduated from JP Morgan Chase and from Iberia Bank, two great banking institutions that taught me everything I know about business. And I got to learn from hundreds of successful men, hundreds of successful businessmen and thousands of unsuccessful and you, you don't realize you, the deal flow, like I'm taking care of four or 500 people and I'm talking to all of them, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 of them a day. And I'm asking them questions. And I was like a kid in a candy store because I got to listen. I got to do this every day. I interviewed somebody every day, every single day. How'd you become successful? What'd you do? What was your biggest challenge? What was your biggest triumph? What are you most proud of? That? What was the hardest thing? How would you do over? And they complain about their wife and I'm like, why? I got like all this great knowledge dripped on me. And so I took it out into the business world again, and I, I grew this, my first real business with structure around it, and we just, we just had a blast. But then I still carried the pill bottle around with me, and I was still, now I started drinking because I couldn't get any more medicine and the way to be able to make the medicine work because it wouldn't work anymore because I was, I was really in pain. It's an epidemic now in America. The opioid epidemic is like a real thing. Yeah. And there's so many people who are afraid to get like tattooed with the connotation that they were an addict. If you're taking the amount of medicine that I was taking and you say that you're not an addict, you're just a liar. You, you haven't got to acceptance yet. Like it's chemically formulated to attach itself to spots in your brain that give you the same feelings of like winning the Super Bowl or having your honeymoon all day long. How do you, how do you beat that? So you're up against a losing battle. So it's like, just accept the fact that you've taken a lot of pain medicine, you're addicted and you got to change some things. And that's what happened to me. I got to the point where it wasn't working for me. It wasn't serving me and nobody came and intervened. It wasn't, it wasn't like this big, huge, it was like literally one day I woke up, I tapped my pocket. I was running out of medicine. I went to the doctor's office. They did a drug test on me and the levels of the amount of medication that was in my system scared one of the nurses. 
And the doctor who was prescribing it to me was on vacation. And it was like her opportunity to have a conversation with me. And she showed me a, a report, a toxicology report that had my levels. And she was like, you see that one right there? I said, yeah. She said, that's high. You see that one right there? I said, yeah. She said, it shouldn't be there. Because now I started taking other medicine because I was still in pain. And I was taking medicine now that this doctor wasn't prescribing me. Another doctor was, but this doctor wasn't. They weren't prescribing me the same medicine. I wasn't getting two of the same medicine from the same doctor, but it was a different type of medicine because I was going to another doctor for a different reason. And so she was like, Blake, you can't do this. And and is this still the pain? Is still the pain from your neck that's still causing you to go back? Or is it a men, different pain? Men manifest depression in their lower back and, and women manifest depression in their abdomen. Hmm. And so I had gone through traction. I was doing yoga. I was getting massages. I was going to a chiropractor. Uh, I was hanging upside down. I was doing physical therapy. Like I was trying to heal myself. But the problem with a narcotic, narcotics don't put you to sleep. Narcotics actually don't allow you to get into REM sleep. So you can't repair your muscle tissues. You can't repair your body. So all of the work that I was doing to try to make my neck better and they try to make my lower back better. It one, it wasn't helping. Two, my body actually wasn't in pain. My mind was. So you're actually exhausted as well the whole time, and this, uh, yeah, the, the drugs yes. are just keeping you up. Yeah, and I and because the the business that I blew up that I when I got into that really did well was a biometric monitoring business. I was actually monitoring my heart rate, my breathing rate, my skin temperature, my activity levels, and my sleep. So we had this little ZO monitor that would actually give you the quality of your sleep. Worked with a great group of guys out in New Zealand to be able to learn a lot of the stuff that we did called Ziffa. Cool. Brian Russell with Ziffa. Yeah, that's how you'd say it. it was great. <laughs> and so uh, we'd say Zephyr, and he was like, Ziffa. So I, so I had the data. I had the data to back it up. That's when I realized the importance of human data. And so when we put that biometric monitoring business down, we started a toxicology laboratory. And so I went from, uh, from addicted patient who literally called bullshit on the whole system and said, I'm going, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Basically I said, I would rather die in pain than die addicted and an addict. Mm -hmm. Like God, give me the pain. I don't want the pill anymore. Like that's, that's the point where I got, where it was just like, there's just, there's no way that this can be my life. There's no way that I can wake up every morning. And the first thing I have to do is chew two 30 milligram oxycodone so that way I stop shaking. Like there's no way that I should have to like, I'm counting like I'm, oh man, it's 10.30. I gotta, I gotta make it to lunch. I gotta make it to lunch. Like the whole game of my life became about spacing out my medication. I was like, this shit's for the birds. <laughs> I was just like, this is just, this is just not a game I wanna be good at anymore. So how did you come off it? Did you have to go cold turkey or? No, no, I went, to, uh, I went to the best place on earth, man. This place for the type of stuff that I was on, which was for opiates. It was uh, Novus Medical Detox in St. Petersburg, Florida. Great place. Awesome. They were 100%. They understood where I was at. We had people, we had people in there that had, God bless their hearts, had like, you know, one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen like in my life is there and she just has like from her bicep all the way down to her wrist, the most horrific track marks. Like looked like she had like smallpox all the way down, all the way down her arm. And the stories that she would tell of how she would get money to be able to support her drug habit, like 
I've stayed sober this entire time off of her stories. I dedicated thousands of dollars really with her story in my mind, helping addiction clinics and children who've been adversely affected by addiction. And, you know, you go through some of these experiences, like, I mean, I was, I wanted to quit. I was running a 5k in detox, like every day. Like I got there and I was like, all right, give me the amino acids, give me the protein shakes. I'm going to, I'm going to gut this thing out. I mean, I'd vomit. I would, I would have diarrhea. I would sleep. I'd have the sweats. I'd wake up, I'd go in their gym and I'd run. I'd come back out and I'd go back and I'd diarrhea and I'd vomit and I'd lay on the couch and these people would be like, man, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. They give me more amino acids, more vitamins. They had these little chocolate bananas. Like these people were like magic. I loved them. There were folks in there that were like selling their body for the stuff that I was getting for the doctor. Like there were people there who were like shooting up with toilet water, you know, like serious addiction, horrible. Right. And so when you see your future, like the crazy part about where I am right now in my life is like right now in this moment, this is the best version of myself that's ever lived. And I know that. Now, athletically, I was stronger when I was a college football player. And there were times in my life when I was making a million and a half a month. I'm doing that right now. There were times in my life where me and my wife, we've never been in love like we are right now. Right? I've never, and my daughter is, is in my life and I didn't have a daughter you know, seven years ago. And I'm more connected with my God and the voice in my head about what I'm supposed to do than I've ever been. So this is the best version of me, but at the same moment, I also know that it's the worst version of me because tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to kick this version's ass. And when I went to detox, I saw what was possible if I didn't permanently change the trajectory of my life. It was like, goes to Christmas past, goes to Christmas future, goes to Christmas present, all in one place. And so, I mean, like God puts you in places for a reason, because I know, I know what I could, what could have happened to me if I had kept going down the path that, that I was on. And there are so many patients that are getting this stuff from doctors. So many patients who actually just had a hurt back. All of a sudden now doctors are doing injections on them, prescribing them copious amounts of medication. So that way the patients keep coming back so they can keep charging fees for the patients. It's a legal drug dealing type of situation. So. So you see the, these pain medications, it's not, uh, it's really not about physical pain in the end. No, no, it's medical. It, may it's start out, it might start out as physical pain and then it I mean, becomes like a, sprain, a, a A sprained ankle, a, a torn ACL, um, you know, a hurt back. Like that's things that like, yeah, it happens, you know. Should you be prescribed highly addictive medication for something that's supposed to hurt? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that anymore. I know during the Civil War, they put a block of wood in your mouth, give you a shot of whiskey, and cut your foot off with a rusty saw. And those dudes made it. Now, they had to limp around, but they made it. Today, it hurts between my shoulder blades. Instead of saying, why don't you pick up your, you know, I got the standing desk now because of this. It's one of the best investments I ever made. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, but I, I, have a, I have a desk right now. If I wanted to stand up, I can stand up. Doc, my neck hurts. Well, here's 60 pills and I'll see you next month for another 60 pills. And I'll see you next month for another 90 pills because at that time, you're going to make start making up stories and I know I got you. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad cycle. And I think, yeah, I don't know where this thing happened where pain became bad or sadness became something that you couldn't go through on your own because you know we've all felt sad we you know, i think a lot of people experience depression especially if you're listening to this podcast you can relate to that but 
you said it yourself beautifully. My people, when we face adversity, we celebrate because we know the growth that's going to come out of that. So by numbing yourself out, by drinking, by doing drugs, by, you know, whatever numbing you do, you're missing the opportunity that is there to grow and become a better person from that pain. You're numbing yourself on both sides of the spectrum. When you numb yourself against the pain, you're also numbing yourself against the joy. Yeah, you become a flat line. You just you're just stuck in the middle. Yeah. And for most people, they don't realize that like being stuck, that's that's my purgatory. That's something for me, I just and that's how I felt. I just felt stuck. And I, thank God I was born with this thing inside of me that was like, nah, man, I'm not dealing with this anymore. Yeah, you had you a know? pretty strong inner strength that allowed you to you know, pull yourself out of it. I've always, man, I have been a screw up. I have messed up and failed (laughs) more times, but like I expect it, you know, like I honestly really do. Like someone posted something the other day, you know, Facebook, they were like, you know, if it's never good enough, why do I even try? And it triggered me because it's like, are you kidding me? Like there's so much art in the try. And as soon as you flip your mind from like, I'm not trying anymore, I'm going to do, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do, like you're doing this podcast right now. I have my podcast right now. Why do we have it? So we can get the message out so people realize that it's okay to be yourself. Take the pressure off. Something created. So you don't you. mind, like I often think about the beginner's mind, right? Which the beginner's mind is happy to learn, is happy to be an amateur, is happy to fail, is happy to be taught. And uh, one of the worst things you can do is is have, I don't know what the opposite of a beginner's mind is, but <laughs> an arrogant mind, right? That thinks it knows everything. You, you just said the word no. Many people get stuck in what's called the knowing mode, right? Doctors get stuck in the knowing mode. Engineers get stuck in the knowing mode. What happens is, is they, they, they hit a point where they stop learning and they stop asking questions because people are asking them questions and they have to tell them what they know. And it's much easier for me to just give you a short answer and an easy answer and to actually have dialogue with you. And that's just what basically what, what, what ends up happening with people. So you have to continue to challenge yourself every day to stay in the learning mode, to stay curious, because I do believe that the more curious people are, the happier they are. Because who doesn't want to learn something new today? I think a lot of people want to learn, but they don't want to look stupid. So can, they, end up, they end up pretending that they... Uh, they know shit. Yeah. And it's this whole ego play that it prevents you ever actually getting yeah. out and just going. The best thing I learned in the last two months, someone, I don't know, it was an article or something I read, but they said, you have to train yourself to say, I don't know. Because we have this ego response, most of us, that's you know not our own fault, but it's just part of being human. When someone says, hey, do you know what time the five o'clock bus leaves? Or not five o'clock, what time the bus leaves to the city? And you go, yeah, I do. I think it leaves at five o'clock. Because we have to, our initial response is we have to be the one that has the answer. It's an ego play. Whereas if you train yourself to say, I don't know, let's look it up and see if we can find the answer. Yeah. That yeah. would be the greatest like, learning you can do. The greatest sure. uh, change in mindset. Step one. now you're able to learn. Step one, stop lying. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Like, just stop lying. Stop lying to yourself. That's what stop it comes down to. People. Yeah, just stop lying. And, and that's, that was probably the thing that I was most addicted to was the stories that I would tell myself. Because I always had an excuse, you know, and for the for people out there who are like really aggressive and also kind of persuasive, they could talk themselves into just about anything. And those are the ones that are really dangerous, man, because when they get bored, they just start burning shit down. They just go into complete like destruction mode. And they just start burning everything down in their lives because they got to feel excitement. So they got to put their back up against the wall, you know, and I honestly feel like, trust me whenever I say this. 
I've gone through some of the deepest, darkest things you could possibly, I know as a human being, as a, as a man that you can actually go through. And, and I didn't always have this chipper tone and this pep in my step, but it like, it took me going through that to have this much appreciation for the life that I have today. And it all started with one thing. I just stopped lying. I like stopped telling people what they wanted to hear. And when someone would ask me, how am I doing? I would tell them, I'm pissed. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm depressed. Like I started going to the, in the thesaurus and looking up feelings words. Cause I only had two. <laughs> They're like, how are you feeling? I'm pissed. How else? I'm mad. What else? I'm, I'm pissed off and mad. You know, like that's it. That's all I had. So I had to, I had to, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. And I'm looking at the definition. I was like, holy shit, you know, I'm depressed. Well, you know what? I probably am depressed. You know, I'm, I'm eager. Um, I'm steadfast. I'm excited. You know, so being able to let my feelings flow again after sedating them for so long, like if you were going to come into recovery, one of the things that you got to do is you got to get your feelings flowing again in a way that allows you to be able to experience life. And you got to start swinging back to sadness and then back to pleasure and back to pain and then back to joy. And it's not a And not labeling that as bad or wrong. Dude, it's an awesome thing. Like my anger is my guide now. My best problem solving tool right now is whenever I get angry. And before I would get angry and it was like, I'm so mad because I can't solve this problem. And I don't have the words to explain the frustration. So I'm going to curse at you and tell you you're stupid for other reasons. That's basically what your brain goes through. It's like, I'm frustrated because I can't connect this loop in my damn crocodile brain. And, and once I started realizing it was like, wait, time out. Like my anger actually is a trigger point that tells me that something is wrong here. And if I just treat it as like good energy, like not energy that goes into the entire atmosphere and lights up the whole room, but energy that's like focused and controlled enough where it would slice through my desk. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. I'm mad for a reason. I don't want to be mad anymore. Let me go ahead and figure this out. And they say, let your conscience be your guide. I, I kind of let my anger be my guide. And now nobody thinks I'm mad anymore. I'm just focused. It reminds me of my uh, my brother, Jason, who's my best friend in the world. And he, you know, stuff that happened to him in childhood, he learned to close up his emotions, right? And, and not experience the full spectrum of emotions. And as he's been working on himself the last few years, he's felt sadness for the first time. He's actually allowed that sadness to come through. And it lasted for a few months because it was a lot of sadness that had been built up there for a lifetime that he'd never let come out. And he had a really funny response to that. People would respond to him and go, you know, he would say, how are you feeling? And you go, oh, I'm just really sad. And they go, wow, well, um, what can I do for you? You know, can I help you? Like, you, you don't want to be walking around sad. And he was like, nah, this is like the best feeling in the world. You don't understand. I've never felt this before. And I, I, I'm sad, but I love the fact that I'm sad. Yeah. Like you'll, hear, uh, you'll hear endurance athletes, like guys that do like ultra marathons, 100-mile marathons, or like World's Toughest Mudder that was just in Arizona, stuff like that, Kokora. They, uh, they talk about getting to a point where the pain is, is – like they're do they're not doing it from mile one. They're not doing it from mile hundred. They're doing it from mile fifty-five to one hundred because at mile fifty-five, that's when their pain starts. And then that they just want to sit in the pain. Also, a form of sedation. Mm. Also, a form of sedation. Like when you see these really extreme activities, like 
there's got to be balance because that guy who's running that 100 mile marathon and look, there's some guys that that's just what they do i'm not taking it away from them but on the flip side of that i want to know what his business looks like i want to know what his relationship with the voice inside of him looks like and i want to know what his relationship with his family looks like because you know somebody who walks around sad all day long clearly we got to be able to get them we need exercise let's drink a green smoothie Let's talk about what's making you sad. Let's get these feelings to flow. Let's figure out if the facts in your life match up with the feelings in your life. I only know that because that's what I had to do for myself. I mean, that's just what I had to do for myself. You start, you start looking at the things that work for you and the things that don't. It's like the more I talk to my wife about my problems, the happier I am. And I never did it before. It's, it's nuts. It's like the more open I am and the more honest with her the better my life becomes. It is like the amount of deposits that I put into our relationship is equal to how good the sex is that we have. And initially, like when you weren't able to speak to her, was it a fear of looking weak or a fear of looking like you weren't holding it together? Oh, hell yeah. No, it was, it was a fear that I would feel pain because when I would make eye contact with her, she would mirror the pain that I have. Mm. And she was in the delivery room with me. She was going through it. There's nothing I could do to take her pain away. And I wish I could be like, you know, I mean, I tried. I was there for No, man. Like, I ran from her pain. I absolutely ran from her pain. You couldn't be with it? No. I, I, tried, to, I tried to get her to cover it up. You know, there, was, there, were, there were points where I would give her pep talks about how she shouldn't feel this way anymore. And she just needs to get over it. Like, you know, I didn't know how to deal with her pain. I didn't know how to deal with my pain. And so the best thing for me to do was to throw a party. I'm gonna build a multi-level million dollar business. I'm gonna have 150 employees. I'm gonna have every excuse in the world to not put your pain on the table, Jenny. You keep that shit inside of you, don't talk about it. And I'm gonna put a purpose in front of your pain. Do you take us a little bit deeper? Would you mind taking us a little bit deeper into the story of, of your kids and what happened there? Yeah, it's... um. First off, my, my wife was like the last unicorn that she was a virgin whenever we got married. And I was a college football player and a bartender. And so I wasn't. And she was like the most, she is today the most beautiful human being that I could ever imagine being with. And I've got like countless people, everybody who's ever met her and me are like, why are y'all together? And so she's like, I completely outkicked my coverage with her. And, uh, what I didn't realize was the medical issues that she actually had when it came to fertility. She would produce a cyst inside of her that would actually cause her to bleed and hemorrhage internally. And so that internal hemorrhaging and that bleeding, we'd have to bring her to the hospital. And the first time it happened, we were about a month into our marriage and we were trying because it was like, hey, why not? And uh, in the middle of the night, I had to pick her up and rush her to the hospital because she was bleeding internally. And it was uh, it was like that, you know, in sickness and health type of vow thing where it's the first time I really had to take care of her and she almost died and it was scary. But what came from that was 30 days later, the doctors actually had a staph infection that they left behind. And what happened from that point was we were forced into fertility treatments because the staph infection caused her to have a ovary and a fallopian tube removed. And so the fact that now she didn't have an ovary and she didn't have a fallopian tube meant that we were going to have to have IUIs and IVFs in order for us to get pregnant. So we'd only been, been married for like three months and we were already doing fertility treatments. And it was like, there's, you don't know, there's a ticking time bomb when she may have another infection or when we have to remove the other one. And my wife wanted to, I wanted to have children that looked like me and she wanted to have children at the time that looked like her. And so 
we uh, we were pushed into fertility treatments. We did um, one, excuse me, four IUIs, which are if you're familiar with that, those are the uh, where they just kind of like they take my my specimen and they go ahead and just kind of like drop it on top of when they know she's ovulating and that didn't work. So then we did one IVF, which is actually the in vitro fertilization, and that did work. And um, and we found out because she was in the hospital on Valentine's Day. We found out that she was pregnant. She had something called hyperstimulation. She had gained like 35 pounds in a couple of days. It was a side effect from the fertility meds. But while we were in the hospital, we did a pregnancy test. And on Valentine's Day, they came in and said that she was pregnant, which was really cool. And then on June uh, June 27th or June 26th, she started having contractions and she started feeling real weird. And I thought it was Braxton Hicks. And I just tried to talk her out of going to the hospital for a little bit. It was one of those because we were moving out of a house. We were moving out of a, out of a house the same time that we were moving into a house and I was rushing it because the people, it was getting towards the end of the month and they needed to be there. So it was a real weird kind of a situation. We were, we were, we were buying a house too fast and, but we, we were doing it. And then when I brought her to the hospital, the doctors were uh, examining her and almost like haphazardly, the guy, the doctor, the old guy walked out of the room and he stopped and he paused and he, he turned around and he looked at me and he was like, let me, let me examine her. Now, my wife's hot. She's beautiful, you know, and she's not really showing right here. And in my mind, I'm like, this dude's just trying to fill up my wife. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you freaking pervert, you know, it's like, cause I've been in situations like that where there was like three doctors that would come in to examine her. And I'm like, there's no reason why you should have three of you. Like there's no third opinion in medicine. Like this should stop no more. <laughs> That's when a towel guy came in one time and examined her. And so we were, we, we were there and then all of a sudden, like he examines her and his face goes white and he, he looked at me and he was like, the head is crowning. I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, the head is crowning. And he said it one more time and he, he like jogged out of the room. And then when he hit the corner, it was just like his feet. So 60 plus year old man, his feet were just, I heard him sprinting and then the entire rooms buzzed up. Everybody, she's going into labor. And so she was 23 and a half weeks there. She had twins and, uh, they gave her magnesium sulfate. They put her in an antenatal unit. She was basically upside down. They're trying to use gravity to keep the babies in for as long as they can. I go back, like she stabilized, which I think means that there was a shift change and the doctor, real doctor hadn't got there yet. And they're talking about, you know, keeping her there in the antenatal unit for the rest of the pregnancy. And so I, I was like, okay, I bought into this. This, this makes good. We're going to will this thing to work. And I, and so I left the hospital and I went back to pack boxes because it's now the 26th is the morning of the 27th. And I got three days later to pack up this house so that way these people can move in. And, um, the doctor who was leaving early to go on his vacation, the, the, the day, the day on the 25th, she was examined by her actual doctor who should have did an ultrasound that day. Cause it was scheduled, but he was like, you know what? You're doing so good. And it was the one time in all of this that I never spoke up, you know, because she was high risk pregnancy the entire time. She had had so many surgeries, so many problems. It was twins. There was every reason in the world. And, but you know, he just, he just, he literally just wanted to leave, you know? So he was like, you're okay. We'll do it next time. And 48 hours later, she was delivering twins. 
So I, he called me up and he was like, dude, you got to get over here, man. I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, she's going into labor. And I was like, nah, man, the other doctor said that she can stay there forever, dude. Like, get caught up. And he was like, Blake, I'm here. These babies are going to come in the next two hours. Like, you need to be here. So I ran back to the hospital and um, hadn't changed my clothes in like two days at that point. I think it was another two or three days before I even took a shower. And I, uh, yeah, man, like the first question I got asked whenever I walked into the, the hospital was, uh, so we have these paramedic students that would be beneficial if they can see your wife deliver because they're going to have to be prepared to do stuff like this on the side of the road. And they need to be able to know what it's like to deliver babies and premature babies. I still to this day don't remember what I said. And I have visions that like I let them in the room or like I saw them all or they were like lined up and they were all like really somber. But it was it was a really, really strange time. The things that I remember that stand out were as soon as the babies were delivered, my mother-in-law appeared with a bottle of holy water. I didn't see her there before, and she just tapped me on the shoulder, and she had holy water. And she was like, you need to baptize your daughters. And uh, it was one of the biggest gifts I've ever had in my life. It was actually a gift I got to share with my brother-in-law, who lost his son the exact same way I lost my daughters. In March, I got to run to the church and get him holy water so he can baptize his son because the sisters lost their children the exact same way. In the, in, the, in the room, the doctor was arguing with the nurse anesthetist about Obama, which was like, you have all the memories I wish I, <laughs> I didn't have in my life. It's like, that's one just burned in my head as he's talking. I was having a political conversation while he's trying to deliver the, the, the girls. And then Jenny got, her, um, Jenny got her epidural late. And so she was knocked out. And Sophie, Sophia, she really didn't get to hold Sophia. Sophia... It's Charlotte and Sophia, Charlotte Grace and Sophia Rose, amazing names. And um, Sophia passed away first after 12 hours. And so we had to make the call. And I just remember the doctors basically making, it's like they never really wanted me to have both of them. They didn't want to have to support both both children, they felt like they put all of their energy towards one of them, but that's just not how my brain worked. Like I couldn't pick, but I think they picked for me. I think they basically gave it 12 hours and they, they talked about them amongst themselves and said, which, which of these babies look stronger. So that way we can focus our energy on saving one of them. Like, I really think that's the type of conversation that the doctors had. Mm-hmm. Cause to me, there was no reason it was like her O2 sat was a little off. They, they have, I learned so much about vital signs and vital signs under stress and breathing. And they, they had her on an oscillator and the typical pump will just go in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And the oscillator literally, it oscillates and it vibrates. And they said that they can't do that for too long. And if they needed it at that age, their lungs aren't going to develop. And so you, know, you just had to make a, a big boy decision and, and let my baby pass away and take her off of life support. And I didn't get to, I didn't get to talk to my wife about it at all. I just had to wake her up. And what she woke up to was that. So she was still kind of drugged. And and then you just don't, you just, you just never prepared for what happens next when they actually, they bring the baby to you. You know, so we still had Charlotte who, who was alive and on life support and was beautiful and was there. And that the, the nurses kept telling Jenny, now you can't get too sad. You can't get too depressed because you still have to make milk. And when you become depressed, you can stop making milk. 
and your baby's going to need the milk. So the Jenny's like really trying to fight off the depression and act like it's okay. And we're trying to be like empowered and the family's there. And then you got all of that and questions and people saying stupid shit. And you just don't, you know, it, those, you just don't, you never really are prepared for that. You just have to do it. And when, when Charlotte passed away at, at 72 hours, it was the same deal. They were like, she's just not going to make it. And when, so when Charlotte passed away, we said our prayers and that whole day, I read the Bible to her, a children's Bible. Um, I get to read the same Bible now to my little baby that we adopted, Violet. And, uh, when we got done with, with saying the prayers and everybody left the Niku unit, the first person that I saw whenever I opened the elevator, we were on a different floor, the elevator doors open, I saw my dad. And uh, he was like, is everything okay? And, and I said, no, dad, I'm sorry, we just, we just lost her. And he was closing the loan on the house that we were buying for me. So the day that I lost Charlotte and Sophia, or excuse me, I lost Charlotte, I also bought me and Jenny's real first house. And I saw the bankers standing right behind his shoulder. And I remember thinking, man, I was so thankful that they actually showed up and how nice it was. And then they were like, they pulled out paperwork and they were like, well, actually, not all the paperwork painted on, printed on the printer. And so we have more stuff to sign. And because the power of attorney that your dad signed has now expired, you've got to sign on this paperwork right now or you lose the house and the deposit. And I was like, all right, well, well, I think we can go in this room over here. I just pulled my daughter off of life support. This is perfectly normal for me to have to buy a house right now. Let me go ahead and do that. So I walked into the the room and then I did a loan closing and I was a banker. So I knew, I mean, I also worked with these people because I was buying it from the bank that I worked at. So just signed all the paperwork and gave them a hug. And and I went and, um, yeah, man, that was like, we were changed forever. The funeral was a grave, was a graveside funeral. My family doesn't really handle, like, tragedy very well. Normally, if um, as much as we like party, you know, drinking doesn't necessarily always lead to good times. So there was some screaming and some hollering, at, you know, the, the night of different cousins and, and aunts and uncles getting into it. We had never experienced a death in my family yet at that point. Everybody was still alive, no divorces, you know, really a real good, strong nine cousins that loved the hell out of each other. And uh, this caused a sadness. I'm the oldest male cousin, and this caused a, a sadness in the, in the family. And I think it really stunted us for a long time because I just kind of like disappeared. I was the, the leader, the young leader of the family. And as I was growing up, even a leader of the uncles and I just disappeared. Like I checked out for like seven or eight years. I just recently got back in the mix with the family and actually being present in activities and caring about what people were saying, because they always wanted to talk about the stuff that I didn't want to talk about. So the easiest way for me to not deal with any of that was for me to either not be there or when I was there, not be there. You know, that was Charlotte and Sophia and fertility treatments and a really, really crazy type of situation. I got all kinds of stories in there 
that happened after and before and during and just God in our life and um, and the devil in our life, everything. But that was that was definitely one of the one of the big chapters that took us eight or nine years for us to be able to really get through. Yeah, I know. Thank you, first of all, for sharing that. I mean, that's a, a very personal, deep story. So I appreciate you sharing that. That kind of thing can uh, also drive a marriage apart, right? How did you did you feel that with your wife, or did it bring you closer together, or did it make you stronger, or what was the challenge after it? I mean, my wife had to heal herself on her own because I was too much of a coward to help her do it. Like that's the that's the honest answer. Our our religion, both of us, you know that her family's so so Catholic. In my mind, that's the way I grew up. But like, you know, divorce is really not an option. But, and, and I never, we never considered it, you know, but she stopped. I think she stopped loving me, you know. Uh, I think she started not caring if I existed anymore. And I think with some of my dangerous behaviors, I think she would have been, it would have been okay if I would have died. Like that's the way I kind of feel like she felt about me only because she told that to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not guessing here. (laughs) She said, I hope the honest truth. Yeah. I don't, I, I, there were times I didn't care because I owned a small craft airplane and I had a high insurance policy on me and I'm pretty sure she was hoping she'd cash in, but (laughs) it makes you stronger now, man, because like we both know what we're capable of. I, I, Yesterday, I've been working so hard at being a good husband, man. Like, it's work. Like, I think the, the biggest problem that most marriages have is that people get trapped in or are fooled that it's going to not be work. Like, it's work. Like, to be connected with somebody and to be, communicate with them and talk to them and love them and see them naked and watch them poo with the door open and smell their farts and their bad breath. And, you know what I mean? And you got a kid and, you, and, you know, you, you're, you're changing diapers and like you have to talk all the damn time. Like it's hard, man, you know, and the, the luster and the allure of, of, of marriage wears off. And what tragedy does is at least is it lets you know what you're possible, what's possible and what you're capable of. And, and for me and my wife now, like I know she's got my back forever and I know I got hers too, you know, because we've been through experiences that I don't want to ruin that. That's when you when you wake up to your feelings again, you, they start your experiences matter more. You know, like I, I uh, one of my 90 day challenges, I live a challenge based lifestyle. Every 90 days, I have a body challenge. I have a being challenge. I have a balance challenge, which is my family. And I have a business challenge. And this balance challenge for me was to propose to my wife over again. And, uh, and so it started 90 days ago. And so I had to put a lot of work in because I knew if I had proposed to her then, she would have said no. And she wasn't going to do it. I wanted to renew our vows. And I talked to her about it a couple of times. And she was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing that in front of people. I know in my heart today that if I went in there and I popped the question to her and told her I wanted to renew our vows and I wanted to go to Arkansas and do it, today I know she would. 90 days ago, honestly, I don't think she'd have pissed on me if I was on fire. She was rooting for me to fail. So this is an ongoing journey for you. 
Yeah. That's the other thing is like, I don't want people to think that like, it can be that quick, you know, like you, you can literally like I've, I've proven so many times in my life that you can screw up in an area with your body and you can be injured and you can have a physical addiction and then literally make a decision to change your life. You can have no relationship with God. I've grown up Catholic and thinks that he hates you and hate him for six or seven years. And then all of a sudden, you can hear him speak to you. You can go through the loss of children with God's favorite virgin and have her hate you for eight years and put 90 days of work into just loving the hell out of her and being open and saying, I'm going to be consistent and have her love you again. Just honesty, just stop lying. You can build a business, go bankrupt, be a banker, build a business, have the oil and gas business fall in its place and lose it, build another business, make $33 million over three years, have 150 employees, have your best friend stab you in the back, wake up one morning and say, you know what? Screw it. It all happened for a great reason. Let's go change some lives. Like there's no finish line. You don't have to be stuck. There's zero like you're always on the, th- I, I consider myself, I'm always on the 30 yard line. I'm either going in for the touchdown or I got to march 70 yards for the touchdown. I don't know what 30 yard line I'm on. All I know is I'm on the 30 damn yard line and there is no, there is no finish line. There's no final score. Beautiful. That's a, that's a good message to go out on. We just got a couple of minutes left, but thank you. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. Like we're just getting started here. I hope it's the start of many conversations. Where do people find you, Blake? If people want to come and learn more about you. So uh, I've got a podcast out there, Bork and Beans. It's the Zodico Beans reference there. So Bork yeah, and Beans. Yeah, I picked up on that. Yeah. And then um, we're doing a big thing right now for the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs fund is a quick action fund. So I've got a jewelry platform that I created for military type uh, nonprofits called jewelrydrive.com. And then... Um, yeah, that's pretty much the two places that I, that I live right now. I've got some other things that I'm going to be launching in 2018, but right now I'm focused on raising money for nonprofits and getting a message out on how it I love you dark because it's the only way that you're going to be led to the light. That's the, the final question. You know, we've got about two minutes left and it's about uh, the dark side. And do you have a dark side and how do you embrace that? So my, my dark side is 100% my rage and my anger. It's my ability to be able to cast shame and blame on everyone around me. And the way that I harness it is I write, I know that I get triggered and I have a process that I go through where I take the story that is controlling my life and I take the the version of the original story and then I put me in it. So for example, if I say, uh, the neighbor across the street is a crazy bitch and she needs to shut her dogs up at five o'clock in the morning. The me version of that story is I am a crazy bitch. <laughs> and I am loud at times that aggravate people and I need to shut up. And then the opposite version of that story is the lady across the street is perfectly sane and normal. And her dogs are doing exactly what they need to do at five o'clock in the morning. And the desired version of that story is I am going to give treats to the dogs at five o'clock in the morning and become friends with them so they no longer aggravate me. 
And so what ends up happening by going through this, I can put supporting evidence for each one of these stories. And I realize, man, is that the stories that are in my head control my life. I can pick each one of those stories, but which one actually gives me what I want. And so I may be right. She may be crazy and her dogs may suck, but it doesn't give me the peace that I want in my life. So if being right doesn't, if being right doesn't give me what I want, why the hell would I want to be right? Beautiful. That's the perfect answer. Blake, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for opening up and uh, and sharing for the audience. I really appreciate it. Man, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And you'll be online here pretty soon, huh? I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, man. There you go, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Blake Bork. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Go and check out Blake's podcast. It's called the Bork and Beans Podcast, where he shares a lot of his uh, insights on life and business. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever favorite podcast player that you're using. Share it around on Facebook, and I will love you forever. I'll be back next week for a big milestone, episode 50 of the Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get you $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor, check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life.